0: Good to be with everyone. My name is Pastor Joseph Bianco. Uh, welcome to the evening service uh, where it's now light again. So thankful for that. Uh, we've been preaching through uh, these Psalms. Uh, we're doing 90 Days through the Psalms as a church. You can find that on our website. We have a Psalm every day we go through, and we're picking a Psalm from that um, that list of Uh, psalms that we are uh, having the elders and other uh, pastors write devotionals on, and using one of those psalms uh, to be our sermon text for the evening uh, service. So today we're in Psalm uh, 139. Let me uh, begin with a prayer, and we'll read God's Word. Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank You uh, for Your Word. We thank You for this Uh, Season of reflecting on the Psalms, Uh, Lord. This is uh, this this is the songbook of your ancient people, and it is a joy to reflect on it, to sing it, um, both in worship and then also uh, at home, and uh, to meditate and to pray it. So, Father, we pray as we come before this uh, Psalm of David that you would work as you would in every uh, word that is written in the Bible. Uh, to enliven our hearts, to encourage us, to help us, Father, uh, daily in our lives. Lord, to cause our affections for you to grow, that we would love you uh, even more. Lord, to uh, work in us that desire for service for our neighbor, and to love our neighbor as you have loved us. Father, would you do all these things through the power of your word? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're on page uh, six of your bulletin, and we're reading the whole psalm. Psalm 139, Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Well, Psalm uh, 139 is about what it means to know and be known by God. So uh, if you've ever heard someone say that the God of the Old Testament is just uh, distant or grumpy, uh, then I would encourage you to have them turn to this psalm. Uh, this is a relational, personal, and intimate psalm. It's a psalm that addresses what it means to be human and for a purpose we're created. If you are new to Christianity or are a skeptic of Christianity, one point I think we can all agree on together is that all humans long to be known, understood, and fully embraced in all of their being. Humans, all humans, long to know, to understand, and to have intimacy and knowledge of the purpose of life and creation. Why am I here? What was I made for? Is all of this an accident? Is there a purpose in my life? The problem is that when our life encounters sufferings, hardships, pandemics, wars, we quickly become skeptical and cynical of God. Does he really care? Is he really present? Are we really created for a purpose? So in this psalm, God fulfills both your longing to be known and to know. So as we come to this text uh, this evening, I'll be framing this psalm to the motif of a dream. And you'll see why as we work through this psalm. There are three points. i will be the God of our dreams the increasing intimacy of God, and the awakening from the dream. And we'll follow the text. So let's begin with the God of our dreams in the beginning. So Our dream begins with the God of our dreams. Uh, This God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and can be everywhere at once. Verses 1 to 6 can really be summarized as what is called the omniscience of God, and that word means that God is all-knowing. God knows us, verses 1 and 2. He knows when we sit down, when we stand up. He knows our thoughts. He knows our paths, where we go. When we lie down, and he's acquainted with all of our ways. So I have some friends who recently married, and I asked the husband what he has learned about his wife uh, so far in their new marriage after living in the same house, and he told me... uh, It was actually his wife who began to notice a particular habit that he has. And that is uh, that whenever he places a cup down at the table, he places it down as close to the edge of the table as he can. Um, And when I asked him about this, his response was, it has not fallen yet. (laughs) So I love this image that God is acquainted with our ways. Partly because I love watching the eccentricities of people. part, it's part of what I love loving a pastor is people. We all have those ways of doing things. Those, those actions that are unique to us. Or facial expressions. I was uh, tickling my son with my beard the other day. And I had this flashback to when I was a little boy. And the feeling of my dad's mustache on my neck. When he would tickle me with his mustache. And... Um, And it's a sweet memory for me. And it's one that only I know. Only I know what my Father's face feels like. No one else does. Well, God knows you. He knows you and He knows your ways. Verses 5 to 6 almost push this knowing even further to uh, what is almost an uncomfortable degree. Verse 5 says we're hemmed in. There's two ways we can think about this to mean hemmed in. Spurgeon takes it in a militaristic sense, like um, when an enemy hems you in from all sides and you can't escape. But again, there's a literal picture of hemming in, which is a picture of sewing, which is that we're being sewn in from all sides, like being wrapped in a warm blanket, which is a more comfortable picture. So either way you think of it, verse 6 is the same response, which is it's very close. It's too much. It feels like it's a lot God's knowledge can feel like it is too much, that it is beyond us. We also see uh, in this language that God knows you better than you know yourself. So um, let me pause there for a second. Do you think you know yourself better than God knows you? And many times, I bet you do. And the contrast really comes when we deal with our designers, Right? When we desire something so deeply, so passionately, that God says that thing would not be good for us. We are like uh, little children who ask for ice cream for dinner. And when the when the parents say no, and the children ask why, the parents response is it's not good for you. <laughs> they don't know. We know. And God knows. So verses 1 to 6 is the omniscience of God. Verses 7 to 12 is the omnipresence of God, which means that God is everywhere. He knows everything and He's everywhere. Now we have to be careful here. What is pantheism? What is pantheism? This is the belief that God is everything. Just because we say that God is everywhere is not saying that God is everything. God is not a cat, God is not a tree. He's not the clouds in the sky. He's not a nice sunset. He's not the stars in the heaven. He's not a cool breeze on a nice day. He's made all those things, but He is everywhere. God is high and God is low. Verse 8. He's in heaven and He's in Sheol. Now, Sheol in Hebrew can mean the grave, it can mean Hades, or it can mean below the earth. Kind of like uh, the heavens can be a reference to the sky. So some have taken this uh, passage of Sheol to to mean that God is even in hell. And I would argue that since the next verse is that God is in the sea, uh, it is more likely that David is saying God is up high, he's down below the earth, and he's even in the depths of the sea. Now, uh, listen, verse 10 is how we ought to feel about God being everywhere. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall uphold me. Ideally, it should be a comfort to us that God is everywhere. Do you ever feel alone? Have you ever been in a situation where you really needed a friend? Have you ever been hurt or betrayed? Uh, Maybe have you been actually lost before, like on a hiking trip? I have. Have you had seasons of confusion or abandonment? In every place, in every uh, state, high or low, when you feel completely isolated, God is there. His hand will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will uphold you. Now, what about verses 7, 11, and 12? So, my uh, cousin has been known to say that nothing good ever happens in the night. So, what about those times we flee God's presence? Verse 7 or hide in the darkness. Hide in our sins. David is clear that God sees us there too. He is there too. Uh, It is unsettling to think that in our most shameful sins, God's there. He sees, He knows. Sometimes my children will sneak out of their beds at night and I hear them. They're in the uh, playroom right now, so they don't know this. I hear them, I don't see them, but I will say from the next room, I see you. <laughs> come out. They come out, their heads hanging down in shame. Our God is everywhere. He's with you in the most intimate moments of your life, in the most embarrassing moments of your life. He's with you in your greatest celebrations, your most wonderful successes, your dreams. It's with you in your worst moments, your deepest shame, your most dark thoughts. God is at the same time most awesome and most terrifying. His presence is both a great comfort and greatly convicting. As we continue in this dream, uh, God's knowledge of us only becomes more intense. So, this brings us to our second point God's increasing intimacy. So, you may have read verses 13 to 16 before. And I heard a talk maybe on these verses about abortion. And while I certainly believe this, these verses can be applied to the preservation of life, it's not the direction I'm going to head today. Uh, partly because as we look at the whole of this psalm, David seems to be increasing our knowledge of just how intimately God knows us. He does this by turning to the womb. God knows you in the womb. He knows you before you had any form or substance. Verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The images were given here are this Who knows you better than the one who created you? Who knows the light bulb better than Thomas Edison? Who knows the printing of press better than Gutenberg? Who knows the Mona Lisa better than Da Vinci? God is your creator. and Not only did he form you, but Genesis 127 tells us that he made you in his image. When we consider all that God has made, he made you higher than any creature on this earth. Dogs and cats, no matter how much you want them to be, are not humans. All humans of all colors and all races and all time are made in the image of God. He was intimately involved, and that means all people are to be treated with such care. So Let me say it another way. Um, You don't use the Mona Lisa as a pin board to hold up your summer pictures in your room. You don't use a printing press to make pancakes. Well, we don't use or treat people in any other way than man is outside that is outside the intention of God's creation of them. We treat every person, liberal or conservative, evil or good, as having immortal souls made in the image of God. We treat gender confused people as made in the image of God. We treat that annoying co-worker as made in the image of God. We treat our mentally ill family member or our our brother born with a birth defect as made in the image of God. We treat unborn children as made in the image of God. Verse 15 uses the language intricately woven in the depths of the sea. The formation of your body is likened to the intricate weaving of a cloth or a tapestry. Your bodies matter. What you do with your bodies matter. Maybe you hate your body. God doesn't hate your body. Maybe you don't like the way you look. God loves the way you look. Maybe you don't like your hair color or eyes or heights or whatever. God made you, and he loves you, and he finds you beautiful. Now, am I saying that people's bodies are perfect? Well, of course not. We understand that sin has affected every aspect of our lives, including creation, including our bodies. Our bodies don't work as they should. I personally have a laundry list that I found out a few years ago of genetic problems that run in the history of my family, and some of which I have. I don't know what our bodies will be like when they're resurrected. But what I do know is that when God formed you, verse 14, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Wonderful means full of wonder. When I look into the eyes of another human, behind those eyes are wonder. What does it mean to be fearfully made? I don't think it means that God was afraid when he made us. (laughs) But just like we are to fear God, for he is great, so you being made in his image demand a degree of proper fear. When a lion roars, it is not bad, but there is a degree of fear. So what are the implications of this? Well, we've already discussed uh, the degree of intimacy and care God has for you. We discussed the dignity and worth we ought to give all people made in his image, born and unborn. And lastly and most importantly is this: God knows you better than you know yourself. God knows you better than you know yourself. Now if you can grasp this, you will have a most terrible weapon to fight against depression and shame and lies. If God knows you and formed you and loved you and created you for a purpose, then what happens if you feel unloved, or ugly or useless? Well, the answer lies in who do you believe more? Do you believe yourself or God? If God says you're beautiful, woven as intricately as the most beautiful tapestry, then the question is do you believe Him? Who defines beauty? Who has the right to say what is good or what is bad if not the one who created you? If God says, You've sinned, but I will cover your shame through the blood of Christ on the cross, and now you are accepted. Then what happens when you say to yourself, I'm not worth anything. Nobody will love me. Nobody will want someone like me. How could anyone accept me after these bad things I've done? The question is, who do you believe? Yourself or God? If God says you're accepted because of the blood of Jesus on the cross and you say you're rejected, who wins? The degree to which you believe this psalm and everything it says about you is the degree to which you will be free from shame and lies. Uh, Now one more. What about when something bad happens to you? You say, I thought God loved me. I thought he cared about me. You say, how could he let this happen to me? Well, look at verse 16. God knows your days. Every one of them. God is not surprised by the evil that comes upon us in our lives. You know, here's a related verse to think about. Uh, 2 Peter 3, chapter 3, verse 9. I'll just read it to you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. There's some in this. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's two uh, ways to look at the evil days we'll endure in our lifetime. We can look at them with a cynicism and skepticism that is directed towards God. And we can accuse Him of indifference and not caring. Or we can believe that He knows these days are coming. He remains present with us. And that He is working in a far greater purpose that all should reach repentance. And this brings me to our third point, the awakening of the dream. Verses 17 to 18 are transitional verses. Uh, you might imagine here there's a chord change. You know, if they're actually singing this psalm, It could be a chord change, perhaps from a major chord to a minor chord. The image is how precious are the thoughts of God, how how vast, more vast than the grains of sand, and then perhaps, as David is counting them, the grains of sand, he falls asleep. And verse 18 says, I awake, and I'm still with you. So Spurgeon marks this uh, psalm as, as, a, as the course of a dream. And interestingly, in our discussion in our community group about this psalm, without prompting, a community group member said the psalm feels like walking through a dream. Verse 19 uh, is such a great change of tone. It's like being shaken awake. What <laughs> was such wonderful reflection about God turns to the reality of everyday life. Verse 19 Oh, that you would slay the wicked! While God is everywhere and he knows all things and loves us intimately, verse 19, why does he not slay the wicked? Verse 20, why does God allow enemies to go on with malicious intent and take his name in vain? If he's all-powerful to create life and all-knowing and ever-present, why does the evil go on? David does not resolve this for us, but he lets it hang there. Like the ongoing ring of a minor chord. That's how it feels, doesn't it? It feels unresolved. And I don't just mean in this psalm, but I mean in everyday life. It feels unresolved. A lot has happened in the past two years. Not only do we continue to go through a once in a hundred year pandemic, but now Russia invades Ukraine. Thousands are slaughtered. We hear daily of Innocent children and mothers and elderly who are homeless and hungry and desperate. With the psalmist, we cry the same words Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God! What was written millennia ago holds true today. This makes sense, then, doesn't it? How David can say the words in verse 21 Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Verse 22, I hate them with complete hatred. In the one sense, this is hard for us Christians to hear because our Lord, in Matthew 5, said, love your enemies. How can we hate them? In another sense, it would be hypocrisy to do anything other than to hate what God hates. Imagine if we did not hate the atrocities happening in Ukraine. Imagine if we were glad of the pandemic that plagued the world. There's a sense in that it is very right to hate what is evil. I found a quote, it's a very helpful quote on this, written by a man a long time ago, in 390, around 395 AD. I'm going to read it for you, you can guess who it is. What is with a perfect or a complete hatred? I hated in them their iniquities I loved by creation. This is to hate with a perfect hatred, that neither on account of the vices thou hate the men, nor on account of the men love the vices. For, see, he adds, they became my enemies. Not only as God's enemies, but as his own, too, does he now describe them. How then will he fulfill in them both his own saying, Have I not hated those that hate thee, O Lord? And the Lord's command, Love your enemies." How will he fulfill this, save with that perfect hatred that he hate in them that they are wicked and love that they're men? For in this time, even of the Old Testament, when the carnal people was restrained by visible punishments, how did Moses, the servant of God, who by understanding belonged to the New Testament, how did he hate sinners when he prayed for them, or how did he not hate them when he slew them, save that he hated them with a perfect hatred? For with such perfection did he hate the iniquity which he punished as to love the manhood for which he prayed. So who do you guys wrote that? St. Augustine. And what does it sound like today that you've heard probably many times? It sounds a lot like love the sinner and hate the sin. You thought that was a new new thing, (laughs) A Christian can hold both of these things together today. Because of Jesus, we can at the same time actually do many things. We can look at someone who does evil things, who's very different than us, and we can offer dignity and worth because that person is made in the image of God. At the same time, we can disagree and even disapprove of their actions. We can hate the sin that is produced in their lives. We can have, in this sense, perfect hatred. Jesus was a friend of sinners, was he not? Here's the next thing a Christian can do. He can be a genuine friend of someone who does not know God. He can love that person and call him to repentance and faith, and those things are not at odds. It is not a contradiction that in the same breath, I can warn you of the perils of hell and love you to the sky. Here's what else a Christian can do. We can remain in relationship even when we disagree. We can find a particular view or idea of our neighbor completely out of accord with God's word while seeking to maintain relationship with him or her. We can do this because we care far more about God's opinion of us than the person we're interacting with. Let me say that again. We can disagree and remain in a relationship because we think far more of God's opinion of us than the person we're talking to. Friends, if you are so known and loved by God, if you know him not just as an idea, but personally, you are enabled to break across many lines. You're able to live, survive, and even thrive in a world of physics falling down around us, when the minor chords ring out in life. The gospel is that you are so loved, so unique, so precious in the eyes of God that he would give his son, Jesus, for you. If God loved you like this, how much more can you love others while maintaining a proper hatred of their sin? My last and closing point is this, and that is that the story is not over. As believers in Jesus, we live in a life of tension. Tension in that God is present, and yet evil seems to continue for a time. We live in a tension of God being all knowing, and yet we're confused by God's plans. They aren't the plans we would decide for ourselves. And we live in the tension of God's presence, where our sin is exposed, and yet through Christ, we're accepted and loved to the sky. So here's where I think the tension is resolved. It is resolved in the resurrection. Christians have proclaimed for 2,000 years in the Apostles' Creed, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. So we prepare our hearts for Easter, we look for the tension to be resolved in the resurrection. This life is not the way it's supposed to be. It is, Christ was resurrected for the forgiveness of our sins in the gift of eternal life. So one day he will come again and our dead bodies will be made new. And all that is sad will be made glad. Justice will be brought for the injustice and all the evil that we see around us. Until that day, here are the attitudes that we are to have. And this is what we'll close with. With David we say, search me, O God, and know my heart. When you feel that tension in your life, I want you to open your heart to the Lord, both to know Him and to be known by Him. Also, you love others the way that the Lord Jesus has loved you. Let's pray.